Welcome, everyone, to In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson, and with me today is John Silverstein, who, in addition to being a corporate attorney in Raleigh, is also this year's president of the North Carolina State Bar. John, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure, Mark. John, I wanted you here today so we could talk a little bit about the North Carolina State Bar and kind of the roles of the State Bar in our profession. I know a lot of our listeners may be in-house counsel. Some may be members of this State Bar. Some may be members of other State Bars. Some may not be (laughs) State Bar members. But I think it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about what we do. As serving as a State Bar counselor, I know that there's a lot of different hats that the Bar wears and things that the Bar does. Maybe it'd be good for our listeners listeners to just start by talking a little bit in basic structure about who is the North Carolina State Bar and what do we do? Sure, Mark. It's interesting you should start that way because our longtime executive director, when he makes presentations to district bar meetings, the first thing he says is, let me tell you what the state bar is not. We are not the North Carolina Bar Association. The North Carolina Bar Association is a voluntary association, and the lawyers who belong to the North Carolina Bar Association not only belong to that statewide organization, but most of them belong to sections as well. And there are many different sections, including corporate counsel. The state bar is structured dramatically differently. We have one class of membership. You're either a member or you're not. And in order to practice law in North Carolina, you must be a member of both the North Carolina State Bar and one of our 45 district bars. So we do find that corporate counsel Some join the state bar voluntarily and also participate in district bar activities, but a lot don't, and there are some practical reasons why they would not. Number one is they don't have to. In order to work for the corporation, they're not required to uh, join the state bar because it's not considered the practice of law if they're working for the corporation. Therefore, they're excluded. Also, If they join the state bar, they must comply with the state bar requirements, which includes the payment of annual dues, the completion of CLE requirements, and then being subject to all the the grievance procedures of the state bar. So uh, even in spite of that, it would be my guess, and we don't keep statistics on various specialty areas of members of the state bar, but it's really my impression that most corporate counsel do join the state bar for the camaraderie of it. They like to get together with attorneys on a professional basis where they work or where they live, and they find that that is of benefit to them. Yeah, I think that's true. Certainly in my experience, I think most of the general counsel I work with end up being members of the North Carolina State Bar. A few are members of other state bars. You know, often they've come from a practice with a firm before going in-house, and so they may have that membership. Right. Um, I know, in fact, our past president, Mark Merritt, is now in the House Council. He's working for the government with the University of Chapel Hill and that the whole University of North Carolina system. But that's really an in-house position now as a past president. And I'm really glad that he's holding that position because the state bar is unusual from just from the respect of the size of the state bar council. If you consider most 
licensing boards. And even though we're technically not a licensing board, we perform the same function by disciplining our licensees. And that's what most licensing boards do as a primary purpose anyway. They protect the public through the disciplinary process. And uh, when you have all of the practice areas represented as we do, with our 68 members, it really helps us do a better job. And I think that uh, of all the various categories of the practice of law that are attracted to state bar activities, you see a lot of criminal lawyers, you see a number of family lawyers, you see corporate counsel, but you don't really see many in-house lawyers. So I think by having Mark add that perspective, it really helps us a lot And interestingly, I think from a public relations perspective, because I think in-house counsel are concerned a lot more with public relations than a lot of us in private practice are. And I think that uh, since the state bar does get involved, various policies and having to take positions that do require some degree of uh, public relations aspect, I think that having someone on the state bar council who has that background is very helpful. I think that's good. Now, I know the state bar does a lot of its work through committees. For those that aren't too familiar with it, can you give an overview of what some of those committees are? Sure, Mark. I'd be glad to. And uh, I have a tendency to get a little wonkish when I talk about the committee (laughs) structure. So if you need to interrupt me, please do. The two great committees of the state bar are the ethics committee and the grievance committee. And every bar counselor is a member of either the ethics committee or the one of the three grievance subcommittees. The ethics committee is uh, responsible for adopting, amending, and repealing the rules of professional conduct, which is in effect the Bible by which lawyers must practice law. And the ethics committee meets on the Thursday of our quarterly meetings, and their meetings can last, as you well know, (laughs) up to four hours and even longer sometimes. I know that you wouldn't say this, but I know that the ethics committee members consider themselves to be the last great debate society in the United States. And my background is mainly in grievance, but having learned about ethics since I've been an officer by attending a few of your meetings, I would certainly agree with that. The Ethics Committee, you understand this a lot better than I do and can explain it, but uh, there are approximately 5,000 calls each year to our Ethics Council from attorneys who are seeking ethics advice. Uh, At the other end of the spectrum, there are a small handful of formal ethics opinions that are issued by the Ethics Committee. And between those two, there are a lot of inquiries that pass through the ethics staff and through the committee for attorneys who are seeking advice. And generally, it's not just an individual attorney who's interested in getting an answer from the ethics committee. Most of the time, it's a matter of general interest. And so the ethics committee, what's impressed me as a grievance person, seeing how the ethics committee operates, is your, your subcommittee system and how you really study the issues very carefully before they even get to the debate before the Ethics Committee. I know you don't want to talk about AVO to any great extent (laughs) and the the lifetime you've dedicated to that subcommittee, but I think that's emblematic of the attention that is given to these important 
issues that come before the ethics committee that are really fully vetted by a subcommittee before the full ethics committee even debates them. And I think it's a wonderful process and stands us in great stead. The grievance committee, which also meets on Thursday mornings of our quarterly meeting, meets in three separate subcommittees. And there are 17 staff counsel who are assigned to the grievance committees, about a dozen of them full-time. And they're assigned to one of the three subcommittees, and they investigate grievances that are filed against attorneys in North Carolina. Who can file grievance? Anyone can file a grievance. And so they're not, you don't have to be a client? No, a, be... as a matter of fact, I should probably answer that by saying anyone does file a, file <laughs> okay. a grievance. All right. um, I'm speaking to the current chair of the Ethics Committee. In my background, I was chair of the Grievance Committee for right. two years. Um, we have around 1,300 grievances filed each year. Fortunately, most of those are dismissed. And one reason is, is because anyone can file a grievance. We'll have grievances that are filed against, um, oh, I remember one was filed against an attorney because he wouldn't fix the air conditioning in a person's apartment. <laughs> and uh, we had to point out that that's not a violation of the rules of professional conduct. I believe you'd agree with me there aren't any rules that directly address air conditioning. That, that's in, true. In I think you'd have to look for those. That's you know, right. There that's, may be some circumstances of where it's a problem to put someone under hot lights and sweat that, out the answers. Right. But after right. that, I, yeah, I think air condition repair is probably not something we regulate. That's as. right. And then we have some others that get more interesting. Sometimes we might have, and this has happened, we would might have parents who pay the legal fees of a child who's had criminal charges filed. And when the child goes in and tells the attorney what actually happened, it's quite different than what the child might have told the parents no. what had happened. That no, actually really? happens more. That does Believe happen? It or not, that does a happen. A child not telling the complete whole truth to the parent? That's, well, that is a shock. The phrase alternative facts is popular these days, and that's a great <laughs> example of alternative facts. But So what happens is the parents will file agreements against the attorney because their child had done nothing yet was convicted in a court of law ah. of, a, of criminal conduct. And we have to advise the parents that even though they paid the fee, it's the child who is the client. And so the relationship is that the parents are complaining of or any rules they're complaining of do not have anything to do with any perceived obligation from the attorney to the parents. There is none. Mm. So those types of situations can occur. So we end up dismissing about a 1,000 of the 1,300 complaints that are filed each year. And then, again, to avoid being too wonkish, but the three subcommittees sit as if they were grand juries. They hear presentations from the staff attorneys. Then the staff attorneys are excused from those meetings. And then the grievance subcommittees decide what should happen with the particular case that's presented to them, a series of cases. So they can have do anything from dismissal or non-public discipline up to public discipline of reprimand and censure, and we can go into those if you want to. We don't have to. But if the recommendation is for license suspension or disbarment, that has to go to yet another entity, the Disciplinary Hearing Commission. 
that's the only entity that can um, disbar an attorney or suspend an attorney's license. That's independent of the grievance committee. There are 12 attorneys and eight lay people on the disciplinary hearing commission. They sit in panels of three and they make the determination um, in full-blown hearings as to what, if any, discipline should be required in a particular case. Great. No, I think that's helpful. And so those are the two great committees. Yes. I, know, I know there are a number of others. We don't have to talk about them all here. One that I think our listeners may be particularly interested in is the one that addresses uh, the unauthorized practice yes. of law, because particularly those that choose not to become members of the state bar can't practice law That's right. um, in North Carolina. And that committee addresses that. Will you tell us a little bit about that committee? And I'm a member of it, so I may chime in as well. Well, as you know, I think that you've been on the committee long enough to maybe have seen, we have had some cases in which corporate counsel have gotten involved. Maybe they'll help a family member. Maybe they'll help a friend. Maybe they'll uh, handle a situation pro bono that involves a practice area they're familiar with. But that's verboten. They cannot do it. As you pointed out, if they're not licensed to practice law, they cannot represent clients. And so I think that the Authorized Practice Committee really performs a very important function because a lot of people might take the cynical view, well, that's just lawyers protecting lawyers. But it's really not. It's, I think, the ultimate consumer protection committee because most of the cases that come to the Auth Practice Committee have a dimension of someone being taken advantage of. And we have that in the debt collection area. We see it in uh, state and probate area. We see it in real estate. Uh, one area that really concerns me is we see it with non-English speaking people. They're very susceptible to, they don't understand the court system. They're afraid of the court system, and they're willing to latch on to anyone who says they might be able to provide assistance. And as you well know, every quarterly meeting, you have an agenda with people on it who have been taken advantage of. And that's why I think it's a very important committee. No, I think you're exactly right. And it is the law in North Carolina. Corporation cannot appear pro se. Yes. So... You know, you may be tempting for in-house counsel that aren't licensed to say, well, I can still defend the company. We're pro se, just like an individual. But the law is clear. That's not an option. You have to be represented by a licensed lawyer. Can be an in-house lawyer if you're licensed, if a corporation's going to defend itself in court. So that's an important consideration for in-house counsel. And again, oftentimes you may be doing things that are practice of law in terms of rendering legal opinions. That's another clear area in addition to more litigation thing that you can't, you have to be licensed. Now, perhaps, depending on where the corporation is, you could be licensed in a different jurisdiction and still render those legal opinions. But yeah, you need to be licensed somewhere and presumably subject to uh, discipline as a result of that licensure. Yeah. And I think a great example of that, Mark, is uh, going back to your own ethics committee and all the conflicts issues when you have an attorney who's trying to represent a corporation and some of the principals in that corporation. And it is a landmine, or it's filled with landmines is probably a better analogy. Yeah. 
It really is. And I did, I, I thought that's actually a good segue to maybe talk about a couple of the ethics opinions I thought might be interesting to our uh, leaders. Really, it's a result of your appointment, John, to me as me as <laughs> John appointed me to be ethics chair this year. So I'm thankful for that opportunity. And it's been an exciting committee to chair. There are not that many opinions that really focus explicitly on in-house counsel. But in looking through our history, I found two that I just wanted to mention. One is in 1986, which seems forever ago. That's right. That's right. right. You know, before I was even uh, in practice, um, RPC-9 held that in-house counsel for the corporation could not serve as counsel to either a lender or a borrower in loans originated by the company. So this was a banking company that had in-house counsel basically said, you don't need to get another lawyer to do the closings. I'll just do it and represent the other parties. Um, the ethics committee said, that's a conflict. You right. can't. You are the lawyer for the bank. You can't represent the borrower Correct. or the lender. And then a very interesting decision in 2001, 2000 FEO 11, said that an in-house lawyer that had found out his company had engaged in misconduct was then terminated. And he wanted to bring a wrongful discharge claim against the law firm and file his complaint containing all the confidential information he had learned. And the Ethics Committee really struggled with the public policy implications, but ultimately said the client owned that confidential information. The lawyer did not have a right to use it without consent for his own personal purposes. And really, that was a personal purpose. Um, And it distinguished some cases involving fee disputes where certain privilege is allowed. So be thoughtful as an in-house lawyer. Remember, and I do think it stands for the somewhat unremarkable proposition that just like in a law firm context, the privilege belongs to the client. It doesn't belong to the in-house lawyer. And so you generally need permission before you would uh, reveal it. You're absolutely right. And I think that uh, my earlier comment that the Ethics Committee considers itself the last great debate society is really evidence of the fact that these questions are not black and white. And they're usually not just often, but usually, are very important policy considerations, public policy considerations on both sides. So as good attorneys, and I think all the bar counselors are good attorneys, if we were to assign one side to one member of the Ethics Committee and the other side to another member of the Ethics Committee, I think that uh, (laughs) we would have the form of a debate that ends up happening anyway, because I believe that, and, and that's what I've really enjoyed about coming from my grievance background and moving into ethics. The really terrific thing is that it's the public policy issues that are debated. And without rancor, without advocacy, when you remove the clients from the equation, I think you have such great quality of debate among people who obviously respect each other, and I just think it works. Now, does that mean that you reach the correct result every time? Maybe, maybe not. I know that it's not unusual at all for you to withdraw an opinion, either um, shortly after it's issued or sometimes several years after it's issued because circumstances can change, the practice can change. Technology can change. Of course, we know that. And so I think that uh, that evidence of the Ethics Committee working, I'm not being articulate right now, but I think the best evidence of the fact that the Ethics Committee is effective is in the manner in which they debate and the almost overly careful manner in which they consider every aspect of an opinion before it's published for comment. 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned publication for comics. I think a lot of our listeners may not know that before any ethics opinion is formally adopted, it gets published. It's in the quarterly uh, journal, for which all state members can get either in paper or now we offer it right. electronically, as well as also on the website. So, um, you know, it's often it, looking at those, we really do listen to those comments. Yeah. And I, I think that also, one thing I'd like to mention, uh, we've talked a little bit of what attorneys might not realize that the state bar does. We're a lot different than most state bars. Most state bars are created by the Supreme Court of the state as part of the inherent oversight of the court system. We were created by the General Assembly. Chapter 84 was enacted by the General Assembly in 1933. But we're not just legislative created because these rules that you just mentioned and, and the ethics opinions, any rules of the state bar, before they're enacted, they must be approved by our Supreme Court. So we really have uh, two eyes over our shoulders. We've got the legislature looking over one shoulder and the Supreme Court looking over the other, and it's the publication of those uh, rules that is required by the legislature to be approved by the Supreme Court. Gotcha. One other role that until I became a counselor, I didn't even realize the State Bar did was their lawyer assistance program, sometimes called the LAP program. And that's something I'm not sure our listeners know about either. Could you just tell us a little bit about what LAP is and what it does? Mark, during the course of my experience on the council, I have bought into LAP hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I mean, I've heard their presentations and talked to some folks, including Darren Jordan, one of the counselors yeah. that uh, chaired that committee for a number of years. And it, it's remarkable to hear about what they are doing for lawyers that need help with addiction problems and other stuff. And again, I don't think people realize that that's something that is funded through the state bar. I'll tell you something that I've found interesting, Mark. I was sworn in as president of the state bar at the end of October of last year. I had been president for, I think, five or six days when I traveled to Asheville to go to the annual LAP conference. And as you know, you're active in the state bar you're active in your legal specialty. You belong to several affinity law groups. You're used to seeing the same people at a lot of the meetings you go to. I went to the LAP meeting, and I didn't really recognize anyone, and it was an unusual experience for me. But the people that were there were so happy to be there, and they were so involved in the LAP program, and I think when you stop and think about it, these are people whose, I don't think it's an overstatement, but to say that they were really resurrected by the LAP program. I mean, these were people, some of whom had lost their profession, some of whom have spent time in jail, and through the lawyer assistance program and the counseling and the support they've gotten, not only have they become lawyers again, but they've become valuable members of their communities and their families again. And when you see people who have really sunk to the depths and have come back from the depths to be productive members of society, it's a very uplifting experience to be involved with the LAP people and to understand the elements of the LAP program. I think that's awesome. I know you've been involved in the State Bar for a long time. I, our listeners may wonder a little bit about your own personal journey to the Bar. What, what got you involved, and how did you, how did you end up being president of the State Bar? Tell us a little, just share a little bit about that. I think that uh, 
it shows, and I'm really not trying to be modest, anybody could be president of the State <laughs> Bar. Um, I went to law school at UNC. I didn't know a soul. I had gone to undergraduate school at Colgate University in New York, mm. and the one thing I knew was I wanted to go to a good law school in the South. I'd had <laughs> enough of those harsh winters. Right. And so I ended up at UNC and really didn't know a soul. So I really had a lot of good fortune to end up where I am now. When I moved to Raleigh right after law school, I was uh, fortunate to be nominated to the board of directors of the Wake County Bar Association twice. And then I ran for president and was elected. And this was in 1993 that I was president-elect. In 1994, I was president of the Wake County Bar Association and the 10th Judicial District Bar. And in that capacity, I attended the annual meeting of the state bar. And when I went, one of the things that I attended, one of the events, was the 50-year lawyers' luncheon, which to me, I don't know if how which you feel fantastic. about it. fantastic. I love yeah. it. Look one, forward to it every year. One of the highlights and, of the year. And just for our listeners, this is a luncheon where lawyers that have served for 50 years come and share their story, some write out a summary, many talk and give highlights. And it is always amazing to me to see how law has changed over 50 years. I mean, it's a long period of time and you talk about not, some of its technology, but also just the size of the bar, the nature of specialization. Firms that are huge firms today may have had, you know, a few dozen people in them and the practice of law is just, it really has changed. So you hear that, but you also just hear life lessons from some real leaders in the profession about things that looking back at 50 years of practice, I just find wonderful. So yeah, I, I'm with you. I, yeah. I think it's a uh, it's a fabulous occasion and, and worth people attending. Well, I couldn't agree more. So when I went in 1994, when you subtract 50 from 1994, you get 1944 mm. toward the end of World right. War II. And the law schools were essentially closed ah. during World War II. I never II. thought about that. Yeah. Okay. So the number of people who were celebrating 50 years as an attorney were essentially people who, for one reason or another, could not serve in the armed forces. And so it was a very, very small group. And I remember attending the luncheon and thinking to myself, you know, that's quite an accomplishment to be able to practice law for 50 years really is a huge statement to be able to be a counselor to clients for 50 years. I used the word awesome just a few minutes ago. I just, it almost overwhelmed me. And at that point, in 1994, I um, graduated from law school in 1971, so I'd been out 23 years and wasn't even halfway there yet. I decided that's my goal. I want to be a 50-year lawyer. Wow. And I got to know a few of the people who were active in the state bar. My partner, Howard Satiski, actually was a bar counselor. And there was one year where, where uh, several openings came up, and uh, I was one of the ones nominated to be a counselor and fortunately was elected. I think maybe somebody must have dropped out or something, but I got <laughs> I did get elected. And then it's just marked so much a matter of just being in the right place at the right time. I remember that um, when I joined the state bar, John McMillan and Hank Hankins were working on a new headquarters building for the state bar and procuring the land. And 
I just happened to be a new counselor. I happened to be from Raleigh, and I did real estate as part of my practice. So they put me on the facilities committee, and eventually I became chair of the facilities committee. And I don't think I've ever had a position in which I have received more credit for things I did not do than that one. <laughs> As you know, we have a yeah, wonderful it new is building. a beautiful facility. And a lot of people have been very nice and have complimented me, and I had virtually nothing to do with it. I just tried to make sure everybody was doing what they were supposed to be doing so we didn't get in trouble. And it ended up being just a wonderful project. Since the building project turned out so well, they made me chair of the grievance committee, and uh, I guess must not have messed up that too much either, and so I got into the line of succession to be an officer. But honestly, Mark, so much of it was just being in the right place at the right time for filling a need that happened to exist on the state bar. Oh, that's great. I appreciate you sharing that that personal story. That is uh that's neat. You know, obviously, there's some ongoing responsibilities as state bar president, uh, things you have to do in terms of appointments and other things. Are there goals that you have for this year of presidency, which I guess is now what we're almost half halfway. over? It's that's half right. over already. It's hard to believe. It seems yeah. like uh, just recently you were sworn in. That's you right. You know, particular focus areas or things that you want to accomplish or, you know, leave as your mark on the bar. We you know, one year is such a short period of time. Even though we're on the bar council for a pretty long period of time, I think that maybe over the course of that time, if you can get involved in some issues that are important to you and provide some input into the resolution of those issues, I know that's very vague and I'll talk about it more specifically in just a second, but it's pretty hard in one year to have too many long-range goals. I know that one thing I think that uh, has worked out really well is the Disciplinary Review Committee. We, in the Grievance Committee, we really strive to be consistent in our discipline and to be efficient. It's just not fair to anyone for the process to drag on too long. And I'm, I'm really not trying to embarrass you with this, but you know, we don't have the luxury of the time that you feel pressure in the AVO right. situation. It's self-imposed pressure because you're getting into new issues, which I'm going to talk about in a second, and it's important to consider those. In the grievance process, you really just can't go on too long. Right. You've really got to get closure. You've, you've got to get fairness. Some, that's to, right. To exactly. the person making the grievance exactly. and to the lawyer that's right. being challenged. And Colin Willoughby, our vice president, is chairing that effort this year for the disciplinary review. And I've just really been enthused at the progress that they're making. I thought that they might just be rudimentary and take a look and say, well, you know, we're doing pretty well. But they really haven't. They're really trying to explore. And I, they've taken what I think is a good process, and I think they're going to make it better. I think that, uh, th and this is Mark Merritt's initiative, the Communications Committee, I think has gotten off to a terrific start. I know you're in involved in that as well, but I think with the engagement aspect of it, the technology aspect of it, and the publication aspect of it, I think that they are really getting up and running and functional much more quickly than I would have anticipated. That's a brand new committee. And to be as far along as they are now, I think, is pretty remarkable. I think that our legislative committee has made terrific inroads in establishing relationships with legislators and not only having the council understand the legislative process, but having legislators understand the council process. The things that uh, I think about and that, that I really can't are too long range for me to have impact 
and I'm pretty sure you'll agree with me on this, is one is the impact of technology on the delivery of legal services. And it's pretty easy to, you know, every time we go to a national meeting, they're talking about the cloud and AI and throwing all these uh, terms out and, and talking about all the things that can be done to predict jury verdicts and just all of these esoteric things. But what really concerns me is the impact technology is having on the day-to-day operations of the court system. If you talk to some of our North Carolina district court judges, one of their biggest problems now is that litigants are not represented by attorneys. And they feel that it's too expensive. They are concerned that they look on the Internet and think that they can get information they need from the Internet and take it into court. And so I think somehow we're going to have to bridge that gap between the availability of technology and how it can provide practical benefit to people. Uh, In some states, I think it might even be Tennessee, they have put attorneys into courthouses, not to represent individuals, but to give them specific guidance on the problems they're going to be addressing, which helps the judges. You know, these district court judges are so concerned because they will have um, one litigant with an attorney and another litigant with a non-attorney. I was just talking to a district court judge about this Monday evening in Roxburgh. I went Mm. to uh, Alan Hicks's Civitan Club and and, and gave a talk, and a district court judge came up afterwards because I always talk about technology, and he said he's having a, a very difficult custody case and there's an attorney on one side and the other side's unrepresented so does the judge represent the attorney is it fair to the party who's represented by an attorney for the judge to intercede on the non-represented party's behalf there are some real important policy questions there so i get concerned about technology combined with what i see happening with the lawyer population in North Carolina. I think you might have mentioned at the beginning there are 29,000 licensed lawyers in North Carolina. About 25,000 of them live and practice in North Carolina. And between your home county of Mecklenburg and my home county of Wake, we have 44% Wow. of those 29,000. And when you add in the crescent, the, the interstate crescent between our, our two districts, you get most of the lawyers in North Carolina. So that when you look at northeastern North Carolina and far western North Carolina, you have attorneys who are retiring, who are leaving practice, and they're not being replaced. Hmm. And so there really are a lot of folks in North Carolina who are not going to have legal services available. We hear a lot about it with respect to hospitals, for example, how they close hospitals in, in rural sections. The same thing is happening with lawyers. You know, lawyers are closing their offices, so what are people to do? Obviously, technology can help us solve some of those problems, but Again, that's way beyond my term, but I think that's something that you're going to be dealing with in the future as you continue on the state bar. I think that's a really interesting point, and it's funny. I moderated a panel of six Superior Court judges 
on Friday and heard a similar view from the litigation standpoint, that their view is now litigation has become uh, the province of the wealthy. You know, that the people in Superior Court, District Court, you may not be able to avoid it because you got family issues and, you know, other, right. other issues where people have to be there. But for civil litigation now in Superior Court, which is where I tend to practice, it's basically companies and wealthy individuals. Most regular folk can't afford lawyers um, and go into court. And that that's dramatic. And also the number of trials continues to drop. I was astounded to hear 103 cases in North Carolina Superior Court went to a verdict um, last year. And that's a really small number. Sure when you is. look at the tens of thousands of cases filed, to have that few go to a jury verdict. It's a daunting proposition to take a case, get it properly prepared all the way through trial, and try it. I mean, it's it's expensive, and it's not something you can do, you know, if you've got $10,000 at issue or even $20,000 at issue. You, you're not going to go to trial over that. It'll, you'll eat up that and more in legal fees, and it's become a, a challenge. So it's two sides. You've got the rural areas, and you've got the expense of litigation that I do think are combining to leave a lot of people without what they should have in terms of recourse to the courts and, and good legal advice even yeah. on non-litigation matters. I think that's right. I, I had the uh, opportunity to visit with our fellow counselor, Judge Mike Robinson, mm-hmm. in Winston-Salem a couple of weeks ago and saw his courtroom in the business court at yeah. Wake Forest Law School. I don't know if you've had the opportunity yes, it's to beautiful. see that. I did, I did see that. Yes, it really it, amazing. It, and, you know, right, right up to speed on technology and everything And when else. you look at what he has there— and what he's able to do for litigants who don't have to come to North Carolina anymore, it's wonderful. But then are we leaving some of the smaller folks behind? And we really can't do that either. We've got There's got to be access to justice for everyone. So yeah. that's a concern. Yeah. we In our panel, we talked about you've got some things like the business courtroom with technology and monitors and plugins and other places where you can't find an electrical outlet, let alone <laughs> Wi-Fi in, right. in these older courtrooms. You, you really struggle. You know, you got to get 50 feet of extension cord if you just want to plug anything in. Right. And, you know, the spread between the idea of, you know, no technology at all, no Wi-Fi, no plug-in, no laptop, you know, and everything on the books in, in paper to the more modern courtrooms is a pretty big disparity. Well, I'm hopeful that my successors, you know, Gray Wilson, there's no one who has more litigation experience in North Carolina than Gray Wilson. Colin Willoughby has just has extensive experience with legal services. And I hope that the two of them with their extensive experience will be able to continue to address these problems. You've already touched on the last thing I wanted to ask about, which is a little bit about the future of the profession. Yeah. And you, you added that. And I do think technology is one of those things, certainly at our firm, you know, we're grappling with, obviously, we practice in very different sides. Right, right, right. You know, over a thousand lawyers, your small group. I mean, we're exploring using artificial intelligence now in some of our practices. I'm wondering, you know, if you use your crystal ball uh, looking ahead, what changes do you see perhaps for smaller firms and other practices? What's likely um, that folks will see or, and maybe for our in-house listeners, what kind of things may change the way they're practicing law? I think what they're going to have to do, and I'm reminded of what you said earlier about the 50-year law years, you know, when I am concluding my 47th year. And, you know, when, when, <laughs> All right, so three more until that, that, you get to address right. the luncheon. That's right, exactly. Right. Well, <laughs> that so, goal you said a right. while ago. So we, uh, 
when we started out, you know, nobody had a fax machine. We used the copier of the title insurance company down the hall, that type thing. What I believe, and I'm glad you talked about the smaller firms because, you know, Wombleby Dickinson, you're going to stay at the cutting edge. You have the resources. I think that until the smaller firms in North Carolina understand that we call it the practice of law, but it's really the delivery of legal services. Until they understand that, that model is changing and technology is having a huge impact on it, and unless they start getting on board instead of resisting change, the better off they'll be. There are some states where they have, uh, I know my home state of West Virginia has sent attorneys into some of these rural areas from the state bar. They've provided funds for attorneys. It's not just legal aid, but it's funds for attorneys to go into these areas where folks are unrepresented and provide representation. That's great. But I think that until we do what some of the other states have done in putting attorneys in courthouses, attorneys banding together and, you know, not necessarily to compete with internet providers or providers of legal services over the internet, but for groups of attorneys to say, come talk to us. Um, we were at a, a Southern Conference of Bar Presidents meeting a couple years ago, and an attorney was getting ready to open a storefront office in a Walmart. Hmm. And I think that the smaller practitioners are going to have to become much more open-minded to changes in the way legal services are delivered to clients, because I'm afraid if they don't, that they'll become dinosaurs. Wow. That's great. Great insight. John, thank you so much for speaking with us today. If listeners want to learn more about your practice, I notice you do have a website for a <laughs> small firm that is Satisky Silverstein, so S-A-T-I-S-K-Y Silverstein.com. And also, of course, you can visit the State Bar's website, ncbar.gov, to learn more about the State Bar, um, or feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to, to share more information. If listeners want to listen to previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe to the podcast, you can do so at our website, womblebonddickinson.com, or go to iTunes, Google Play Store, or SoundCloud and subscribe there. If you have questions or comments, please share them with me via LinkedIn or Twitter. Thank you for listening. This has been In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station. Thank you very much, Mark.